So um, let's turn to first, or sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 29, and we're going to continue in this series. So we're looking at King Hezekiah and the theme being revival. Now, as I've stated, and I'll say it again, I'm no expert to speak on revival. I can assure you of that. But the scriptures are. And so if we examine the scriptures and in this case study the nation of Israel and the life of Hezekiah, there are valuable lessons that we can learn and things to observe um, in relation to what the Bible refers to as what we call revival. Now remember, revival primarily has to do with God's people in, the, in that it means to, be, to come back to life, to be revived, to live again. And so um, this is what we see historically in the nation of Israel. This is what we see and understand historically in the church and as, uh, also as it applies to individuals, as, we, as, as, as I have read over the years, many um, uh, in, uh, accounts of uh, individuals have, who have had a personal encounter, renewal, or as we use the term revival in their relationship with God. And so these are the things that we want to consider. Now, remember this as we start. Actually, let me say this before I continue. I mean, there's only a few of us here this morning, but um, on Wednesday we had our Bible study and there was only a few of us, uh, a few people away for that, but only a few gathered together. And we've been going through Psalm 119. And we had a tremendous time of uh, a blessing uh, as we were coming around, came around the Word and people were sharing testimony and it was evident that God was touching individual lives. And the Scripture that we were looking at where uh, in Psalm 119 says, uh, I cling, my soul clings to the dust, revive me according to your word. And so one of the reasons why I chose Psalm 119 is in, uh, also in relation to what we're looking at here in Hezekiah. But also um, the two main themes of, uh, or there's actually a few, but uh, the predominant theme of uh, Psalm 119 is one, the word of God. And secondly, revive me, O Lord. Revive me. It appears numerous times throughout the chapter. And we got to the first instance of it on, on, um, on Wednesday. And really, in a manner in which God was moving amongst us. And so it was very encouraging. And so as we come around the word again this morning, I pray that uh, it doesn't matter if there were many or few, amen, the Spirit of God wants to speak and minister to our hearts. And so I pray that we can uh, uh, glean these glorious truths and have God uh, quicken them to our, our mortal bodies and our souls and our spirit this morning. Praise the Lord. Now remember this, I have said before that revivals don't start or don't begin with a happy heart or everyone being happy. They begin with a broken and contrite spirit. And that is important for us to understand in the context of things as we, as we study them. And we've seen that, especially in Hezekiah's case, when we consider his father Ahaz, who was a wicked king, and the state of the nation of Israel, in that time, and Hezekiah comes to the throne, and so we observe uh, that uh, the temple the doors of the temple have shut. So there's, uh, uh, although there's much intent and desire, the circumstances are one of sorrow, because the conditions are such that they are uh, they are not right before the Lord. 
And so, uh, and so, and again, historically speaking, we see this in the church when it gets to a point of, uh, uh, of darkness or drifted away from God or death has uh, encroached upon it for whatever reason, God revives. Hallelujah. But it comes with sorrow of heart, acknowledging the state and the condition and the need. And in doing so, coming before God and God meeting with us. Praise the Lord. But let me say this. It may not begin with a happy heart, but it ends with a happy heart. Amen? And that is what we will see as we examine again further the, the nation of Israel. Because uh, when, when God's people are uh, revived, when they are right with God, when they are, uh, are refreshed by the presence of God, you cannot help but rejoice and be refreshed and revived and alive in Christ Jesus. And the result of that is always joy, extreme rejoicing in God. And so that is something that we can see. Now there's another point that I want to bring to your attention this morning. As we proceed, and, and um, in light of the fact um, that God can revive a heart, let me say this, the, the, what God does in a heart, when God revives a heart, it is sudden, it is instantaneous, okay? Now, what I'll say is that leading up to a particular point uh, uh, through a process, that process can take sometimes months, years even, in for various and variable reasons but God in dealing with his people uh, he brings us to a particular point and sometimes to a point where we are uh, uh, have been brought low before God where we are broken before him where we are hungry where we are desperate we are thirsting and just when we think God I can't do this anymore and we come to a certain point and then suddenly God comes and suddenly in everything instantaneously changes because that's how it works. And I want us to keep that in mind as we, as we consider the text this morning. So Hezekiah, he has gathered the priests together, the Levites and the people, and we know that they dealt with the temple. They opened the doors, they repaired the temple uh, they went inside the temple, they repaired the altar, they repaired the, um, the table of showbread, which we considered some of these things symbolically last week. And so um, they, are, they are preparing themselves. They removed all the rubbish that was inside the temple, the Bible says, the, the, the debris. And so they had, they had determined in their hearts. Remember Hezekiah said, it is in my heart to make a covenant with God. And so as he shared what was in his heart, the people embraced the same and it was now it was transferred and it was in their heart and together they came together in the Lord and began to prepare themselves and deal with the issues at hand. And so we want to move through to the next portion of Scripture because Hezekiah, the priests and the Levites and the people they have or, or the, the priests and the Levites, they've cleared the temple, they've done what they had to do, and they've prepared it. So the temple is repaired, it's established, it's reset. So let's read from verse 20, and let's begin to pick up what it is that's, uh, that's going on here. Verse 20, the Bible says, Then King Hezekiah, he rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. 
And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering and for, uh, for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. Then he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests killed them and presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David, um, of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and the instruments of David, or, uh, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and, and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house, into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings as many as were of a willing heart bought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, and all these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated things were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few, so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore the brethren, the Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves." For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Also the burnt offerings were in abundance, with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings. For every burnt offering, so the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people, since the events took place so suddenly. Amen. Now, what we are now observing is Israel has, uh, and Hezekiah, they have made the preparations in terms of having opened the doors of the temple, cleared out the rubbish, made the repairs. The temple is now prepared. And so now uh, they move to the next phase, uh, and that is that they begin to offer up the sin offering, the burn offering. Uh, and even in the next chapter, uh, they, they proceed to engage and uh, practice the Passover as well. And so uh, what we have here is a picture of the preparations being done. Now the provision is being made. And that provision, obviously with the various uh, uh, offerings of the sin offering and, um, and the burnt offering, is all symbolic, we know scripturally, that being Christ. But here we're dealing now with the issue of being atonement for sin. 
And so there are sins now, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so here they are. Now they're pre- presenting the, 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 the sin offering, they're sac- making the sacrifices, they're gathering the blood, and they're uh, putting blood on the altar and doing these things. And they are, there's atonement for sin now that is being made for the people of Israel. And so this is very significant because in any, uh, in any uh, form of revival or if any form of re- renewal or restoration unto God in terms of our fellowship to Him, it is imperative that we understand the need for uh, confession and in this instance repentance. That we would confess to God our wrong. That there would be a repentant heart that would turn away from that which is wrong. And so this is what Israel has done in effect in in preparing themselves. And we find the New Testament equivalent where the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so uh, we, uh, we are privileged. We know that Hebrews tells us that Christ was offered for, for sin once and for all. So we don't need to go back and begin to um, uh, offer burnt offerings and sin offerings and so forth. But the blood that he shed was once and for all. And so now we have been eternally justified. And so we're not dealing with the issue of justification and we're not dealing with the issue of our salvation. But in dealing with this, we're talking about our renewed relationship to God. Because in in the Christian life, people drift. Sin enters. People's hearts harden. People can depart. And various things can happen and there is a need for renewal for the Christian to be in right relationship with God. That's why confession and repentance is critical as part of our preparation. The provision is there. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us. Amen. So we can come boldly. We have the blood that cleanses us. Hallelujah. But you can see here the parallels and you can see the picture that uh, we are dealing with and that we're talking about. You see, in the Christian life, you know, here we see in Hezekiah's case, they've, uh, they're, they're, it's the whole issue of sacrifice. But you know, one of the things that I've learnt and I've observed as a Christian is that we talk about the cross. And yes, in salvation, we need to come to the cross in order to, to receive our salvation from Christ. But you know, one of the things that I've learned as a Christian is sometimes you've got to come back to the cross. Not to to be saved again, but to be renewed in right relationship and to be refreshed in your relationship with God in order that we can find cleansing. And so what happens, amen, is we, at various stages in our journey, in our pilgrimage as a Christian, as a child of God, there are times in which we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, coming back to the cross and there finding grace and mercy and God's love in terms of finding revival and God's restoration. You see, we know that the cross is a symbol of forgiveness in the Christian life. But it's also a symbol of consecration in which we find the scripture tells us to take up our cross and follow him, to deny ourselves take up our cross and do his will 
And this is part of the Christian journey. This is part of the Christian life. And so the issue of the cross is always uh, central. And the need to come back, uh, especially in the context of revival and renewal and restoration, is important. And I, I pray that we see this this morning. But God is faithful and the blood cleanses us and uh, over and over because the, that pr the price has been paid. Praise the Lord. But what we see here is the process of preparation that is being made by uh, the, the children of Israel and also, as we've considered in the last few weeks, the preparations uh, uh, that are re required of us in preparing ourselves to be re uh, revived by God. And so the need to examine our own hearts, to test ourselves, as we've, uh, as we've looked at. But you see, what we understand in Scripture is that as the, uh, you know, when we talk about the burnt offering as well, we, we, the Bible tells us in Romans 12 too that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so the, uh, we can, uh, again, this is a once, uh, we, we understand it in the context that Paul is exhorting them to a, a, uh, this uh, once-off in um, uh, commitment, but this is something that is, can be and should be and needs to be renewed at various stages of the Christian life because it's a living sacrifice. And sometimes, you know what happens? We as living beings, we venture often veer to the left and to the right when we need to come back to the cross. We need to come back to the altar. We need to come back, amen, and make those preparations. But you see, when we come to the altar, amen, that is where the fire of God will come. That is where the presence of God will meet with us. That's where God comes and visits us, praise the Lord. And how glorious it is when the Spirit fills our hearts. So, sacrifice, we see here from verse 20, is being instituted. It's the first thing that's being now put in order as the temple has, has been prepared. So what is it that they do next? Well, what is, look at verse 25. The Bible says that Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David of Gad the king seer and Nathan the prophet, for this was the commandment of the Lord of, by his prophets. So in other words, what we see now is, is a revival of worship. Amen? A revival in which the people of God, having now prepared themselves, having got the temple cleansed, and now sacrifice has been, uh, the cleansing has come through sacrifice, now all of a sudden their hearts are so lifted up that they are engaging in praise and in worship unto God. And so the whole, in, in revival, in a visitation of God, the one thing that will always come forth from the human heart will be a thankful heart, will be a heart that is filled with praise, a heart that is filled with worship. How can it not be? Where such is lacking, then a, he revel, uh, there is a lack of revelation of the cross and of the grace and of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Because once you experience this, once you understand the depths of it, once you appropriate these things for yourself, you cannot but 
praise Him, thank Him, and worship Him for all that He is. Amen? And so, we have in the modern church today so much that comes in the name of worship. But I see so much of it as a form of entertainment. I see so much of it as, you know, I, I don't, whether it's in salvation or whether it's in revival, doesn't really matter. But one thing that I understand, the, the, deeper, the deeper dealings of the cross of Christ in your heart, the deeper the depths of your praise and worship to God. And what I, I believe that so many lack this revelation. They, they have not passed yet through the cross whether it be for salvation or whether it be in self-surrender and, uh, and, and self-denial, whatever the case may be, but it can apply to us in so many different ways. But we can't emphasise the issue of praise and worship enough. And surely the, the, uh, in Ephesians it tells us that one of the signs of being filled with the Spirit of God is what? Singing psalms. And spiritual songs, because when you, when you have when that fullness in your heart, you can't but not. You don't listen to some of the half of most of the nonsense and rubbish that's out there in the world. You can't but not, but worship. Can't, can't but not, but sing. And so praise and worship is that which is coming forth in Hezekiah and the people of Israel. You know, one of the things I was reading as I was just preparing this was about the Methodist movement. And so the Methodist uh, movement in which John Wesley and his brother Charles, uh, who wrote the hymns, many of the hymns that, uh, of that uh, era, uh, one of the things that they put a strong emphasis on praise and worship. And, they, and, and uh, one of the, uh, part of the guidelines for, the, for their worship was this. It says, learn the tunes. So when we come into the house of God to worship, we come to worship, amen? We don't just come to go through some ritual or some routine or just disengage, but we are engaged in worship. So the guidelines was one, learn the tunes, know the songs. Two, sing them as printed. Three, sing all. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you'll find a blessing. Number four, sing lustily and with good courage. And number five, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing. And see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. In other words, enjoy the music, but make sure that you're not carried away just in the soul and in, uh, in some emotional experience, but focus and understand on what they're singing, what's being said, and, uh, and on your worship to God. But you see, we don't find that in the modern era because now it's all about us creating an atmosphere with music to create an atmosphere in the, of, that is a soulish realm in which, you know, so even after everyone still plays and you've seen how they carry through with the music and we all stand there and we feel the emotions and we're just drifting and we say, oh, we feel the spirit. No, it's just an emotional experience. Just worship God without music and you'll still have the spirit of God come. Amen? You don't need to have all that thing, stuff carried. Now understand there is a blessing in music. 
But you see, worship doesn't, you don't have to have any music, and you, know, and you can have true worship from the heart, and God and the presence of God can come and fill the place. But no, we've got to have it all manufactured now with the lights and the music and the feelings and the emotions. And, and, uh, I can, and then we say, can you feel the presence of God? Well, I've been in environments like that and I have not felt the presence of God. See, we need a revival of true worship. And to have true worship, you've got to have songs that reflect worship. Not some of the songs that we find in the modern era again that I don't believe qualify as worship. Anyway, having said all that, Hezekiah, he gets the singers and the musicians and they are brought into the house of God. And uh, not only that, listen to what the scripture says, they bring into the house of God, they, uh, they have tr uh, trumpets, they have, uh, they have um, uh, stringed instruments, they have harps, they have cymbals. So in other words, it's okay to have musical instruments. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen. And so again, let it all give glory to his name, but let everything be done and serve the sole purpose of worship unto God. And in this instance, as the sacrifices are being made, Hezekiah says, you make sure you sing unto the Lord. And so, in other words, that worship is closely associated with the cross and with the sacrifice of Christ and with the, that which is related to our salvation in Christ. And we sing and we worship and we rejoice in our Lord and our Saviour. So, we find in verse 29, it says, When they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped bowed and worshipped so they sang they played their instruments and in this instance after it was done they bowed and they worshipped God and I think that's probably why Pastor Werner always makes emphasis about bending the knee amen but it is uh, it must find its expression in our worship amen bowing down before the Lord. And then it says, look in verse 30, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise. And so they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, now notice here, it says they sang with gladness. There was joy. There was rejoicing in the presence of God. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped. A sense of so solemn, uh, uh, so uh, so the solemnness of God, the sovereignty of God, and just the reverence and fear of God being in the presence of God. And so sometimes there's a time to rejoice. Sometimes there's a time to, to, to uh, uh, be um, uh, reverent in the presence of God. I, all these things come together. But we see them here in the scriptures. They bowed down, they bowed their head, they, they sang with gladness, they rejoiced in the presence of God. You have the whole expression of the emotions that are associated with worship, but they must be associated with true worship. That's my point. Praise the Lord. In verse 31, 
Bible says, then Hezekiah answered and says, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. Notice what he says here. Now that, we, that, that you've been consecrated because they made the preparations, they separated themselves, they removed the rubbish, they did everything they did in terms of repairing the temple. Now the sacrifices have been made, the cleansing has been done, atonement for sin has been made, and they are now consecrated to God. And he says to them, come near. And isn't it, thank God that the Bible says we can come boldly, that we can enter the holiest, holiness, uh, holiest by the blood of Jesus. And so we know, amen, the provision that Christ has made, the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin so that when, when repentance and confession is made, we can have assurance and confidence to come straight back in, amen, and to be in the presence of God. We don't have to stand off, stand far off and, and, and be under the condemnation of the guilt and shame. And when we come in with that and we realize we are nothing but he is everything and all that he has done, all we can do is just love him and worship him. Amen? And that's what the Lord wants. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our worship. He wants us to offer to him a thank offering. Sometimes you've got to come into the house of God and give a sacrifice of praise. I know we'd like to say every Sunday I come in here and I just feel so wonderful that I just can't wait to sing unto the Lord. Well, there are times I feel like that, but there are times I come in here and, you know, I'm just feeling flat today. Ever felt like that? Well, you know what you've got to do? You've got to make a choice. Put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness and you must engage and you must worship. And as you present that unto the Lord and you rejoice in God, you know what? You receive the blessing of it. And so I would encourage us to be mindful of that because sometimes people come into the house of God and they're like, and, I, and I, we've all had tough weeks, but when we come into God's presence, it doesn't matter what's gone on, amen? He is worthy. And I will, I will worship him. I will praise him because he is worthy. And so the issue of praise and worship is central, significant in what we're considering this morning. So look at verse 31 because it says that they, they brought, and Hezekiah says, now that you've been consecrated, come near, bring the sacrifices and the thank offerings into the house of the Lord. And so they did that. Now listen to what it says, as many as were of a willing heart. A willing heart because that is the key to all of this remember we looked at last week where Hezekiah says in, in uh, back in chapter 29 where he says it is in my heart and then he brings the uh, the priests and the Levites with him and then they embrace that for themselves because we again we looked at the fact you can't force this on anybody you can't make people uh, uh, and you can't legislate these things it has to be in your heart. And so Hezekiah had it in his heart. The people had it in their heart, uh, the Levites and the priests. And now the people have come together and as many were had a willing heart, they did this. And it has to be a willing heart. Amen? See, that's why when it comes to praise and worship, you have to have a willing heart. You can, you can still be feeling, feeling flat, 
because emotions don't always, you know, if we walked the way we felt, we'd all be up and down all the time. But you see, our emotions are are not to be our our masters, but our servants. And so it doesn't matter how I feel, I say to myself and my emotions, we're going to worship God. We're going to praise the Lord. And I'm going to do this with a willing heart because I love him. And again, we see the, the instance here of a willing heart being central to all of this. It's in the, it has to be in our heart. Now let's go down to verse 35. Scripture says that also the burnt offerings were in abundance and the fat of the peace offerings with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Set in in order. See, this is, this is important. I understand where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Praise the Lord for that. And we have a liberty in Christ uh, in terms of uh, uh, our, our salvation and just uh, um, being in the presence of God and that which is such. But you see, in the house of God, as it was in the temple in its time, there was pattern, there was order. And when they got uh, things in order, then things would proceed. And so too in the house of God, let it be known that things uh, uh, need to be set in order. In the house of God, in the church universally, in the local assembly, in our own hearts, things need to be set in order. And so this is part of the process of revival as well, is setting things in order. Examining our hearts and saying, well, you know what, this has, this, is, this has to change, this area has to change, I need to stop doing this, I need to do that. And we begin to uh, examine, we begin to prepare, we begin to present ourselves uh, and we begin to get some things in order. And when things are set in order, hallelujah, this is also part of the process in which God will meet with us. I know that First Timothy is talking in the context of elders and structure of leadership and so forth, but there is a principle when it says in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And see, that's the sad thing in the modern church They don't know how to conduct themselves in the house of God. You see some of the things that take place in the house of God and it is disorder. It is is an offence to God. And these things are done in the name of liberty and in the name of the Holy Spirit, but they are anything but. And so it is important for us to understand what is appropriate in the house of God not just from a leadership structure, but also in how we ought to conduct ourselves. So I want to leave you with one last thought this morning. It's found in verse 36. Now, it says, Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced. This is the fruit of everything that is just, of everything, this whole chapter from verse 1 right through now to verse 36. The whole emphasis of what has, has gone on has resulted in this. All the people rejoiced. Because when, and this is, this is, this is the sign of, of revival in the heart. This is the fruit. 
is you can't but not rejoice. You can't but not be excited. You can't but not, amen, uh, uh, express these things before the Lord. And so the people are rejoicing. Now listen to what it says. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people. Now remember last week I spoke about how uh, when we looked at what was happening in the time of Hezekiah, we see the emphasis being on human uh, response and human initiative. Hezekiah is, is making choices. He's, uh, he's leading the people. They are making various decisions. And we looked at the scripture also where it says, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. So, um, so what we when we read this in, in Hezekiah, you find that there is a much emphasis on the human aspect and the human responsibility that is associated. But you see, listen to how it concludes. It says that they rejoice that God had prepared the people. And so what, how do we interpret this? Uh, because we like to say, well, it's all God. Well, it's because, uh, you know, it's all man. No, it's all God. How, does it, how do the divine and the human work together? You see, there are various tensions here that work together in the purposes of God. No one comes to God unless God draws them. But you see, God's not going to make that choice for you, is he? See, God believes for no man. And so there's the, there's the divine and there's the, and there's the human. And so, so too in this instance, what we are reading here is exactly that. Can I tell you that one of the things that I have learnt and I have observed over my years as a Christian uh, and in ministry is this. You know, sometimes we go through various trials. And we go through these trials and they can be very uh, testing. They can, we go through times of suffering, disorientation. There's, a, there's a anguish that can come into our hearts. There's lots of things that can transpire. And, you know, and it brings us low before the Lord. And sometimes we get, we get to a point of desperation where, God, I need, you, I need a fresh touch, Lord. Lord, revive me. Lord, renew. And so we, we're crying out to God and because of the way in which we feel. And I have found that there are instances in my Christian life where God has met with me, where God broke through at, a, at an appointed time and he met with me and I was instantaneously changed in the circumstances because of what God did in my heart. And obviously he had the choices, some choices I made. But what I learned was this. God had been at work the whole time behind the scenes to bring me to that point. God had prepared me. And then I had to, and he had prepared me to the point where he got me to the point where I had to make the choices that needed to be made because he wasn't going to make them for me. And so this is how I see it. This is how I understand it. So, and this is how I believe this, uh, in chapter 29, this is what we're seeing. God was, is, is, had prepared them, but they had prepared themselves in response. And so I believe this is how the Christian life works. That's why the Bible would say to us, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How can you count it a joy? Because we understand God's working. God is at work. That's why the scripture says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do. So we work it out, but God is at work. So God's the one preparing us, but we're also preparing ourselves in response to him. And so this is an example of the two working together. Uh, what I 
what I have found is that God brings us to a point where we must repent or we must confess or we must choose or we must seek him or we must cry out to him in desperation. And like I said at the beginning, sometimes these things take time. Sometimes we're stubborn. Sometimes we're not as responsive as we should be. Sometimes, like Israel, we're dwelling in the wilderness uh, uh, and uh, we're going round the mountain rather than entering in and passing through the Jordan, so to speak. And yet, we come to this, God brings us to this point. And like I said, it, it, it can take time. But you see, this is how God works. I look at uh, Paul in Corinthians when he deals with the issues of the church in Corinth. And then um, uh, later he writes to them again and he says, you know, um, though my letter made you sorry, I don't regret it. Because he talks about godly sorrow that what? Produced repentance. It produced a vehement desire, zeal. And so uh, out of their trial, out of the, the anguish of their experience, there was, there, there, they were revived in, God, in their relationship and with God as, a, as an assembly and as individuals. That's why James would say, when he writes and he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like, wow, I mean, that's not part of the Christian doctrine. <laughs> Aren't we meant to rejoice? But he says, humble yourself in the sight of God and then he will lift you up. And so this aspect of preparation where God prepares us and where we go through a process of preparation, sometimes this can be for a prolonged period of time. And it happens this way. And if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you'll know and understand what I'm saying this morning. But I want you to know something and I want you to see something. Because the scripture says... That the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Now let me bring this to, your, to our attention this morning, these words, suddenly. Because you see, this is what it's all about. Suddenly, everything changes. You know, we can go through various trials, we can go through various experiences, we can go through uh, um, uh, where God works in our hearts to bring us to a certain point and we, sometimes we feel weary, we feel we can't handle this any longer. Lord, I'm hung, hungering, I'm thirsting, I'm dry. God, what's going on? And we, we find ourselves more desperate and more, and more broken and more uh, uh, humbled before the Lord and then one day, at a particular point of time, suddenly, everything changes. Thank God for that. And so if you take the opportunity to look at the scriptures, you'll find this word suddenly appears a few times and it has a, uh, a, a bit of a context. And I just want to consider it with you because um, what's important for us to understand, amen, is we don't need, you know what, the church doesn't need a 12-step program. The church doesn't need you to go through, oh, well, go have 10 sessions of counselling. What the church needs is an encounter with God. Because when God meets with you, I don't care what the problem is, Jesus will set you free. The Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God comes in, I tell you now, what man tries to undo, God undoes instantaneously. And I know this from experience. 
And I know this as in, in ministry because I've seen and I've known that when I've reached a point in my life where I think I can't go on, I'm so desperate, I'm so broken, and then all of a sudden I break before God and then God meets with me in such a manner that I tell you what, I am free. I'm changed. God has come into my heart. And I didn't, you know, I remember uh, very honest, I've shared this many times, but I'll share it for the sake of it. You know, when I was a young Christian, I bought those books on, on healing the wounded spirit and Christian psychology and, and things of that sort. And I remember reading them thinking, gosh, this is weird. But, you know, my heart's desperate. My heart's yearning. And, uh, and, and I, then I picked up another book, Why Christians Can't Trust Psychology. I read that. It's like, hmm, that seems a bit more interesting. Hmm. But, you know, I still haven't worked it out yet. God's still making the preparations in the background. He's bringing me to a place. And I tell you, I went through that process and I began to see things more clearly, but I still had not experienced uh, that, uh, um, uh, that I had later. And I remember when I eventually broke before the Lord, it's like what I had wrestled with for, for so many months and years, God in an instant set me free. Because we don't need a 10-session program. We don't need a 12-step program. We need Jesus. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so when God suddenly touches a, a life, amen, he can undo what no one can undo, amen? He can change what no one can change. We're dealing with a miracle-working God. And in Hezekiah's time, these things took place suddenly because God was at work. And so too we find this principle of God's sudden appearance which changes everything in Scripture. What's the first thing that comes to mind? On the day of Pentecost. We know that Jesus had prepared his disciples. Then we know he told them to tarry in Jerusalem. So they're now doing the preparations that they've been told. So they're waiting. And then the day of Pentecost had fully come. Now listen to what the scripture says. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Suddenly God comes. And I tell you, when God comes, everything changes. And so this is the principle. And as they begin to preach the gospel and as they begin to uh, call men to repentance, it's interesting because in, 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 in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, the reference is obviously for salvation, but there's a principle here where it says in uh, Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is obviously to do with salvation in terms of when a person gets saved, uh, uh, that their sins are forgiven, that they are refreshed from the presence, or that word refreshed is actually revived. Revived from the presence of God. But the principle, too, is, it remains in the sense that uh, we, too, in the Christian life, have times of refreshing that come from the presence of God. And so this word times in the Greek is interesting because it, it, it literally, from the Greek, it means a set or proper time. And that is an appointed time. And so God has his time. You know, what I have learned is God is never early and he's never late. Amen? 
and just when we think we can't go on, just think enough's enough. How many times God breaks through? How many times God meets with us? How many times God speaks to us? Or whatever the case may be, and we are suddenly, everything changes. Times of refreshing, times of revival come from the presence of the Lord. And as one man said, Roy Hesson, he said, revival is nothing more than the life of Jesus Christ being poured afresh into our hearts. Or as another Brian Edwards uh, wrote, it is uh, a people saturated with God. It's the presence of God. It's the fullness of God in our midst. Suddenly, suddenly, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly come to his temple. Being prophetic about the Messiah, about Christ. But you see, the point being is, is that the, the preparations are made. Um, uh, and then the, then the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And how often it happens when we have a need, when we're desperate, suddenly he comes. This is, a, a, you see it again in, in Acts chapter 16 with Paul and Silas. And you know the story that they are in prison and they are chained in the depths of the dungeon and, uh, uh, for, the, uh, for, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so it's midnight and they're with all the prisoners and the Bible says they're chained and they are singing praises unto God. They're offering to God the sacrifice of praise. That I, you know, being in this type of a place doesn't necessarily warrant it, but they said, no, we're going to do it anyway. And then the Bible says this, listen, turn, if you can, if you, or in Acts 16, verse 30, uh, 25, sorry. Listen to what the scripture says. Acts 16, verse 25. But at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's chains was loosed. Suddenly, God comes. And when God comes, what's the result? Not only is there deliverance from their circumstances, the chains fell off and they were free, but also the Philippian jailer comes uh, and says, what must I do to be saved? You see, because suddenly God can change things. When God comes, we, we, things happen amongst his people. When God comes, uh, things happen uh, to the world around us. Amen? And that's the, the pattern of revival as we understand it in Scripture. And so we see these things. Suddenly the Lord comes. And so again, I just want to kind of conclude and ask this question, just a few questions of ourselves again as we consider things. But maybe there needs to be some things set in order. You know, we looked on Wednesday in our Bible study and it says, revive me. He says, I, I cling to the, my soul clings to the dust. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. 
Meaning it's, it's like there's a death, there's a, I'm dying, there's desperation. And he says, revive me according to your word. Bring me back to life according to your word. You see, and that's what we looked at. The word is living. It's powerful. It's sharper than turning two-edged sword. So if a Christian's not reading the word of God, tell me how can they be revived? The, you have to be in the word. You have to be receiving the word. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus said. And so if we're not reading the word, if we're not giving ourselves to the word, then we are starving ourselves spiritually. And we will be clinging to the dust and we will be saying, Lord, revive me. But that revival will always manifest itself in a hunger for God's word, a desire for God, a love for God. It can't not, it must. And so that's the question I'll ask. Is there a hunger and desire in our heart for God this morning? And what preparations do we need to make? Because what the principle of the Christian life is this, and I believe it to be true and I believe it to be scriptural, it is this. After the cross, there's always the resurrection. Amen? After Calvary, there's always Pentecost. And so as we seek the blessing of God as we seek the fullness of the Spirit, it may be that we will have to go through the way of the cross. We'll have to go by way of Calvary. There may be a need to die to something and take up our cross and follow Him. As we humble ourselves, He lifts us up. I just want to close with one last... I want to read to you a... Um, and I shared this a little bit in our study, I was speaking. But uh, there's there an author that I've read over the years. And he wrote a book called His Deeper Work in Us and How God Works in the Human Heart. Because we have lots of so many, you know, we have Pentecostal movements, we have, uh, you know, the Methodist movement. We have so many movements and, and so many um, people try to interpret the scriptures. But at the end of the day, a lot, a lot and most of them are having the same encounter with God. Sure, we can squeeze it into whatever doctrine you may like or justify it scripturally, however. But the principles remain the same. And, not a one, and so uh, let me read to you as I conclude this, this, this morning. Sidlow Baxter says these words. He says, It is that experience originating, originating at the crisis point. That's where God brings us to, a point of crisis. Originating at the crisis point of utter self-yielding to God, not always emotionally vivid, but always most definite, in which the Holy Spirit infills the heart, making fellowship with God and possession of Christ as real as never before, and effecting within the fully consecrated believer a moral and spiritual renewal into holiness or a hunger to be holy, Deeper and fuller than could ever other, or that could that could ever be other or known otherwise. You see, because when God fills the heart, Amen. We can't not but pursue holiness. We can't not bear the fruit, but bear the fruit of holiness. And so I pray again in the context of what we're considering, King Hezekiah and revival, that God would grant us a measure of revival individually, corporately, whatever it is. But Lord, let's prepare, let's see. Because suddenly, 
God comes. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for your word. God, your word is truth. We thank you, God, for that which is written and the admonitions in which God come forth from your word, and in this, in this case, the nation of Israel. My God, I pray that we would take heed of these lessons, that we would understand these principles, Lord, that we too, Lord, would not just, would not just be a clinical, not just be something that's in our head, but God, in our hearts. God, that we would have a passion, that we would have hunger, we would have desire. Lord, there would be a desperation that would come upon us, Lord. And God, that we would make the necessary preparations. Lord, we would maybe need to cleanse the temple, whatever the case may be, but so let it be, Lord. And God, send the fire. God, send your spirit. God, bring fullness of blessing, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you this morning. Let's dismiss. Let's have a